So I want you to go back in your imaginations, back 2,000 years ago to this small little town in what is now present-day Israel. And uh, there's, there's this seemingly obscure man, he's 30-something at this time, seemingly obscure man living in this small, obscure village, a village that many people look at and say, can anything good come out of this town? That's what some of the remarks are as they, are, as they, as they talk about this town. And this, this young man, this 30-something-year-old man, was from a very dubious background. His, his parents were not married when he was conceived. His dad was simply a carpenter. But in, the, in, the, in our imaginations, we see him walking across the stage of our imaginations, and he has now a little group that's starting to follow him. He has, in fact, 12 people that he calls disciples. And for, for some three years, he invites them to follow him into, like, to use a phrase that I like to use a lot, he invites them to do life with him. And he also has a little wider audience of men and women who, who are following around and listening to his, his teachings. And he predominantly is teaching them about their holy scriptures, their holy book what some people call the Hebrew Bible. And he's sharing the story with them that they are all familiar with. He's, they, they know it really well, and no doubt some of us are familiar with it also. But the story goes like this, and I'm going to share it very briefly, but this is the basic story that, that he shares with them and he expounds upon. He says that God created the world, and God created the world to be inhabited by these creatures that partner with him to create a flourishing in this world. But unfortunately, the original creatures, Adam and Eve, they decide that instead of of following God's ways, they decide to go their own way. And they, they give over the power and the autonomy that they had possessed. They give it over to others. Now, God doesn't give up on these humans. He doesn't give up on these creatures, and he promises them that he will still bring about his creative purposes. And so eventually, over time, he calls this man Abraham. And through Abraham's family, he promises that he is going to to fulfill his purposes for the world. That one day, eventually, there would come a figure, a Messiah figure, an anointed one who would come and set all things right. Eventually, Abraham's family turned into the nation of Israel. And God said that he would fulfill his purposes through Israel, but they too kept turning away and getting farther and farther away from God and his ways. They rejected his purposes for them, but God continues to make this promise that he will not abandon Israel. He will love Israel. He will have compassion on Israel, and he would indeed send that Messiah. Eventually, however, things got so bad for Israel that they were, they were taken away into exile. And so their identity as, as, as people is known as an exile identity. And they're wondering, is God going to make good on his promises? Is God going to send a Messiah to rescue Israel from exile? Is God still going to send a Messiah to 
to, to make good on the promises that he would make things right. He would renew all things. And this is a story that this, this 30-something-year-old man spoke. He, his name, of course, was Jesus. But he, he declared in the most astonishing statement, perhaps, he declared one Sabbath morning in a synagogue in that little town, Nazareth, as people were listening to him, his reading those holy books, he declared to them that today this promise is fulfilled right in front of your eyes. Now, this rather unremarkable man was not that unique in that first century Israel place because there were many Messiah figures that arose during that time. There were people who, who, who rose up and, 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 and declared that they were going to be the deliverers of the Israel people. Now, what happened time and time again is these Messiah figures were, were unfortunately snuffed out and they were arrested and they were executed many times. And so it's not that remarkable that this man arose with this message of delivering Israel. But his approach was different. Because he did not come with force. He did not come with violence. He came simply with a message and a life of love. And he came teaching such beautiful words that, such that people would hear him and they said, man, never a man spoke as this man speaks. And so if, as we imagine him walking for the, for, across the dusty roads of Israel at that time, he slowly started gaining more and more followers and he would move around the villages in the area and he would heal people. He would bring words of love and compassion and he would bring heavenly words to them. And just as he was gaining more and more momentum, just as he was gaining larger and larger crowds, something quite unexpected happened. You see, just at the moment where his followers thought he was building and crescendoing towards that grand liberation of Israel. He was arrested on trumped-up charges, and he was executed. And what went from being this large crowd that was following him, this large following, all of a sudden turned into just a handful of people. Could you, it, it maybe is hard for us to imagine because we live 2,000 years later and we kind of know the story already, at least most of us do. And so we, we kind of know where the story goes. But if you're living at that time and in that place and you see this whole thing play out, you think to yourself, here's just another story of another failed Messiah figure. When he was brought outside the city of Jerusalem, He was placed up on a cross, and he was nailed to a cross. Now, what's interesting is, and again, perhaps we don't appreciate this to the degree that it would have had the significance in the first century, but this was the most horrible, shameful, embarrassing way to be executed. This was what the Roman government did to make sure that everyone understood their authority. There are stories, actually, of of uh, executions that took place also during that time between, I don't know, about 100 B.C. and 100 A.D. There was one story of uh, the, the, the zealot Spartacus, and he and 6,000 of his followers 
were hung on crosses from, from uh, Rome to Kalua, I think is the name of the place, about 150 miles. 6,000 of these people were placed on crosses every about 40 feet or so along the road for 150 miles. This was the way of the Roman government saying, you do not mess with us. In fact, crucifixion, being placed on a cross, was so shameful that people usually didn't even talk about it. It was a taboo topic to talk about in polite society. And so as Jesus is being hung there on the cross, there is no possible way that anybody would look at that and think anything other than shame and embarrassment, which is demonstrated by the fact that as he, as he hung there on the cross, there was merely three women who remained with him and one of his disciples left. Everybody else disappeared because all of their hopes and their dreams and their, and their aspirations for not only themselves but for Israel were dashed that Friday afternoon 2,000 years ago. We can hear it in the words of some of his disciples a few days later. They were recounting the events of, uh, of the, the previous couple days and they said these words. Notice how they say it. They said, we were hoping that it was he, that is Jesus. We were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Do you notice the past tense? We were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. All of their hopes and their dreams and their vision and their aspirations dashed that Friday afternoon on that hill right outside of Jerusalem. But you know, something remarkable happened. Something remarkable. That's, that's a bit of an understatement, right? Something remarkable happened because suddenly the whole story was turned upside down. The whole script changed. And what looked like defeat was turned into glorious victory. A few days later, three days later, the story goes. Now, this is just a story that we've been told. The story goes that Jesus came forth from the grave alive and he appeared to his now 11 disciples in an upper room. They were all huddled around this room together. They were trying to pick up the pieces and he came forth and to their utter astonishment, there he was in front of their eyes and they could not believe it. And he began to explain to them the whole story reframed in the context of what his life and death was all about. You see, what they considered to be shameful and embarrassing, what they considered to be absolutely reprehensible, was actually the exact means by which Jesus was carrying out his Messiah mission. And on that Friday afternoon, again, what looked like defeat was turned into victory. Now, you and I, again, if we were there and we were sitting in that upper room and we looked around and we saw these dejected, depressed, downtrodden gentlemen as they are trying to figure out how does this all work, if we were to just observe it and and, and notice it, we would think to ourselves, what a sorry band of of disciples. I, I would dare guess, I mean, there's more of us in this room, but if someone were to... If someone were to walk in this room right now and they were to size us up, they would think, yeah, that, those people aren't really going to do much. Those people aren't going to be world changers. But you know what? Just as with those early disciples, 
so too with us. The revolution begins with just a few as we are grasping the power of the cross of Jesus. You know, it's interesting, a few years later, there's this man named Paul. He became one of arguably the most important figures in this new Jesus movement. And I want to just make it clear, lest we forget how it goes, but we're going to unpack this a little bit more as we go forward. But that early movement was a very faint flicker. We sometimes think, oh, you know, three days later, and suddenly there was like millions of Christians. But it took a little while. It took a little while. It took... And again, we'll unpack this as we move forward. But it took person to person, heart to heart, skin on skin. It didn't just like, it it wasn't like Jesus got on TV the next day and was like, I'm back from the dead, everyone follow me now. But this this man, Paul, he in fact turned that, that, that symbol of death and shame and embarrassment and he said, this is actually the thing that gives us our power He said this, for example, there's a few places that he wrote writing one of his earliest expositions on this topic, arguably his first letter that we have. He wrote this to the Galatians, but God forbid that I should boast except in the what? In the cross, in that symbol of embarrassment and shame, something that you don't even talk about in polite society. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's like, this is the thing that at one time was was to our shame and embarrassment. This is the thing that we glory in. This is the thing that we boast about. This is the sign of our victory. He also said, writing a few years later to, to Jesus' followers in Corinth, he said, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved It is the power of God. This is the thing. Not just the symbol of the cross, but the message of the cross, the substance of the cross, the reality of the cross. This is the thing that gives God his... This is is the power that emanates from God. This is the thing that changes the world. Because on that Friday afternoon, 2,000 years ago, the whole world was changed in a dramatic way. As I said, we may not... If we were there, we wouldn't have thought anything happened. But it was the day that this revolution began. It was the day that, that, that stood as the fulcrum of all of human history. Paul, elsewhere, says it this way. Sorry, Jesus puts it this way. He actually makes this comment. His disciples probably didn't fully pick it up when he said it, but as they were looking back, on the whole story of the last three years as they were placing it within the right framework of of Jesus' life and death, Jesus said this very intriguing thing. He said, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, in other words, when I am crucified, he said, I will draw all people to myself. Now, there's many different ways that we can unpack that. We won't do so at this time. But what Jesus is basically saying is this event, this cross event, this, this sacrifice, this death that I'm about to experience is going to influence and impact the entire world. There is not a single human being, there is not a single creature that will be left unaffected by this act that I'm about to go about doing. 
He said the whole world, every corner of the world will be affected by it. Now, there's many different ways that we could unpack how that is true, but I want to just give you one single example. It's a very, very simple example, but you realize that out of this one man's life and death, the whole world to this day measures time in relation to him, right? I mean, it's a very simple example, and, and there are no doubt people in different corners of the world that don't know the story and don't, don't measure time that way, but, it's, it's a very, but, but by and large, around the world, this is how we measure time. There is literally time called B.C., which is what? Before Confucius, right? Is that what it is? No, it's before Christ, before this man showed up on earth. And then, of course, A.D. is Anno Domini, which means the year of our Lord. So when we watch TV next January 1 or December 31 and we see those celebrations in Sydney or in Tokyo or in London or New York City, and they're saying, hey, it's 2020, what they're all saying, whether they realize it or not or whether they buy into the religious message he was bringing is that this is the year, the 2020th year, since Jesus showed up on earth. So his influence, while seemingly small at the time, his influence in that single act started a revolution, a world-changing, and I would even say a universe-changing revolution. Now you and I, we started unpacking this last week. We looked at this promise in Revelation chapter 18, this this amazing, crazy promise that, that doesn't look like it's going to be fulfilled anytime soon, yet it's there in those scriptures that Jesus instigated after he went back to heaven. And it's this simple promise that there is this angel that came down from heaven and it said, and this is speaking of the very end of time, because Jesus promised that he would come again. He said, I'm going to go back to heaven, which he did. I'm going to come again and I'm going to receive you to myself. He said that before this takes place, the earth will be illuminated with God's glory. That is to say, the earth will be enlightened with the character of God's love. It's actually a promise that he had made through the prophet Isaiah back in the Old Testament age, where Isaiah sees this picture of of God shining his light down on Israel, and Israel having the nations surrounding it see and be drawn to that light. So there is this promise of incredible revolution, and that revolution began there way back on that Friday afternoon. The seemingly insignificant, humiliating, embarrassing, shameful death of a 30-something-year-old man who had four followers when he was nailed to that cross. But that act was the single most significant and influential act the universe has ever witnessed. The ripple effects went out to the ends of the earth. And they turned into humongous seismic waves that are still being felt today. Now, we're going to unpack as we go forward 
in future teachings in this series what that exactly means and what that looks like and how you and I can be a part of it and what, how, how it is transferred because that movement there early on started with just, I'm just going to say four because they were the ones at the cross and then it came to the 12 and then it went out to 200 and then it went out to 500 and then, again, I'm giving you the Reader's Digest version because this didn't happen overnight. And then it went to thousands and then it went to tens of thousands. Eventually it went to millions. Today there are now two billion Jesus followers around the world. Now as I'm going to unpack a little bit for you, it seems as though those Jesus followers, maybe there's been a little bit of losing the, the exact message as to what the whole Jesus movement is about. And that's part of our problem. And we see it, especially in the Western world, is that the Jesus movement has kind of fallen on hard times to say the least. But God does give this promise that he has started the revolution and it's going to reach a crescendo again. And as I said, you might be looking around this room and you're thinking to yourself, well, I don't see a revolution going on in here. But I don't think you would have seen it as you were sitting there in that upper room with those 12 that Sunday morning. And you thought to yourself, what? This, is another failed pro- this is another failed experiment. But Jesus said, no, 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 no. This is when the revolution began. So just quickly, as we wind down here for today, I want to read for you. I'm just going to read it for you because we don't have time to go through it all this morning. But uh, this is, this is the, an encapsulation, one of my favorite encapsulations of what that revolution was all about. Again, we'll unpack this going forward. But I, I'm just so rejoicing over this passage. Um, I've read it many times. It's one of my favorite, but we'll just get a bird's eye view as we, as we wind down here this morning. This is Paul, again, writing to the Corinthians. This is the second letter, actually probably his third letter, but we don't have the first one. So uh, this one's simply called second, even though it's the third. You got it? Okay. So he said, if I acted crazy, he's writing the Corinthians, he's trying to demonstrate the, the reality of his, his apostleship, his, how he should be numbered with those that are closest to Jesus. He said, if I acted crazy, I did it for God. If I acted overly serious, I did it for you. He says, Christ's love has moved me to such extremes. He says, his love has the first and last word in everything we do. Our firm decision is to work from this focus center. One man died for everyone. That puts everyone in the same boat. He included everyone in his death so that everyone could also be included in his life a resurrection life, a far better life than people ever lived on their own. Because of this decision, we do not evaluate people by what they have or how they look. We looked at the Messiah that way once and got it all wrong. That's, after all, what Paul did. He was originally a persecutor of the Jesus people. He said, we, we, we once looked at the Messiah that way, but we got it all wrong. As you know, we certainly look, don't look at him that way anymore. We realize that something major was going on. He says, now we look inside, and what we see is that anyone united with the Messiah gets a fresh start, is created new. Isn't that awesome? He says, the old life is gone. The old life is gone. A new life burgeons. Look at it. All this comes 
from the God who settled the relationship between us and him and then called us to settle our relationship with each other. God put the world square with himself through the Messiah, giving the world a fresh start by offering forgiveness of sins. God has given us the task of telling everyone what he is doing. We are Christ's representatives. Elsewhere it says we are his ambassadors. God uses us to persuade men and women to drop their differences and enter into God's work of making things right between them. Isn't that cool? It's not just a task of being right with God. It's about being right with one another. And this cross event is the only thing that has the power to accomplish that. He says, we're speaking for Christ himself now. Become friends with God. He is already a friend with you. It says, how you ask? In Christ. God put the wrong on him who never did anything wrong so we could be put right with God. Just, just, again, the bird's eye view, just quickly running through this amazing reality of this cross event that reshaped the entire world and reshaped your life and my life, whether we realize it or not. It re, and it can reshape us to greater and greater degrees as we grasp the significance of it, as we, as we understand the power and the reality behind this event that totally revolutionized and changed the world. And it's only through that event, as we cling to that event, as we cling to that death that Jesus experienced that Friday afternoon, it's only as we cling to that that you and I can be world changers. And never mind world changers, what about home changers, marriage changers, work changers, every context we're in, as we allow the reality and the power of that cross to shape us we can go out and be a part of that revolution. One of my favorite authors, who is probably the best expositor on this man, Paul, he, he highlights the reality of this revolution this way. He says, Jesus' first followers saw the cross event as the vital moment, not just in human history, but in the entire story of God and the world, Indeed, now check this out. I love how he puts this. This is N.T. Wright in the book, The Day the Revolution Began. Indeed, they believed it had opened a new and shocking window into the meaning of the word God itself. That's, a, that's quite a, a thought. Like, the whole meaning of God was completely reframed in their mind that Friday afternoon when they started picking up the pieces and looking at their own holy scriptures and they said, oh, okay, that's the truth about who God is. Totally redefining it in their minds. They believed that with this event, the one true God had suddenly and dramatically put into operation his plan for the rescue of the world. When Jesus of Nazareth